0: Hello, New York, and welcome to our listeners from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York City's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. On most shows, we focus on a particular neighborhood. We explore its history, its vibe, and its energy really, what makes the neighborhood special. And we do it through interviews with urban historians, local business owners artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Occasionally I'll host a show about an interesting part of the city that's not about one particular neighborhood. might be one of our fine urban parks, a great museum, the history of our transit system, maybe the city in the time of a particular social or political movement or musical genre. That'll be fun. I'm looking forward to doing a show on punk, (laughs) or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. Each episode will be informative, entertaining, illuminating, and, of course, fun. And each show will be available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. Well, today we're going to be focusing on Chinatown. Next Tuesday is the Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year, and I thought it was a great time to to showcase one of the older neighborhoods in, in the city, and actually New York's first Chinatown, because now we have a number of them. I think we're up to seven. I have two great guests today, Uh, one of our regulars, Joyce Gold, and also we're going to be having a first-time guest, Joanne Kwan, who is the president of Pearl River Mart in Chinatown. Joyce Gold is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through her private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Her site is JoyceGoldsHistoryTours.com. Joyce has published two guidebooks, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and another, From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. I'm going to have to read that someday. Uh, She's contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. Uh, Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2007 Review. And Joyce also has been called the Grand Doyenne of New York City Walking Tours. It's a hearty welcome to Joyce. Joyce, welcome.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me on, Jeff.
0: Always a pleasure, as you know. Uh, and also, full disclosure, Joyce and I partner with a number of her tours, which I have uh, from my business walking tours, which also are coincidentally called Rediscovering New York. Uh, Joyce, some of our listeners know about your personal history, but I'm sure we have listeners who don't. Um uh, you're not originally from New York, are you?
1: No, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania. I was born in Hazleton, PA, but I moved to New York with my family when I was in the ninth grade.
0: And how did you get into this amazing business that you're in right now? Illuminating people and sharing the city's rich history?
1: Well, I was working on Wall Street. I was a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And one day, looking at the old Mendoza's used bookstore, I found a hundred-year-old book about New York a hundred years prior to that. Well, it talked about old New York. It talked about streets that I passed every day coming from the subway to my office. And it just changed my life. Suddenly, the city was much more interesting. And I realized that the more you know about the past, the more interesting your daily life is. In those years, nobody I worked with knew about old New York. And I sort of took it as my mission to help them appreciate the city even more uh, than they had before.
0: That's great. Um, Moving on to Chinatown, when did the first development come to what we now know as Chinatown? When does the first uh, structures, the first neighborhood, the first outskirts of town begin?
1: Well, you know, okay, you know the city really begins with uh, the European uh, entry in, uh, at the financial district, the southern tip of the island. The, the Dutch wanted to make sure the British weren't invading with their ships. So it was only when more people came to town that the line of settlement moved up the island. Just before the American Revolution, there were some businesses in what is now called Chinatown. And uh, there were tanneries. It was a sort of unsavory service uh, service and best away from where most people lived. There was the wholesale meat area. In fact, the first three streets of Chinatown really tell you what it was like in that late 18th century time. Mott was a butcher, and uh, Doyers was a distiller, distiller, and the oldest building in Chinatown from 1785, uh, George Washington hadn't even been inaugurated president, is the Edward Moody House on the Bowery, and he uh, trained horse uh, horses for horse ra- racing and was also a wholesale meat dealer. So that pretty much tells you, in a way, how unsavory it was before it became Chinatown.
0: So one... Might say that it was on the other side of the tracks, even though there were no tracks
1: yet. <laughs> <laughs> no tracks yet, but it definitely was. Oh, yeah.
0: I've seen that building, it, 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 it's really, really old. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. It also is Flemish Bond, isn't it? It's the, it is.
1: It's It's a Georgian structure and uh, housed in an off track bedding, coincidentally, about 30 years ago. So, when did
0: what became Chinatown start to become a residential neighborhood? When did people start living there that were not? These businesses that that had that were set well, up. Well,
1: they say it was in the 1820s. Now the Collect Pond, which had been uh, was the big lake, two blocks by two blocks lake, that allowed the tanners to throw all of their detritus into the water to get rid of it, uh, lo- dead animals and all kinds of chemicals. That gets covered over in 1805. And to drain it, uh, they come up with a canal down the hill, emptying into the Hudson River, which of course today uh, is under canal street that 's the origin of canal street so that 's when the population was growing in eighteen twenty There were one hundred and twenty five thousand people in Manhattan uh, we were the f- that was the first year we were number one in u s population and there were a lot of one-family houses that went up in the 1820s. But one of the main reasons, not the only one, but one of the main reasons that caused the neighborhood to become really filled with a lot of impoverished people was that the tax laws of the time. The tax laws made it easier for uh, a developer or a building owner to house more people, not by tearing down the one-family house and putting up a multifamily house, but crowding multiple families into what had been originally just for one person. So that's the 1820s. Oh,
0: an interesting real estate question. I wonder if the uh, because they must have had real estate taxes in those days. I wonder if the if the if the taxes stayed the same even though they subdivided the houses. If that's what the part of the advantage would have been to uh
1: well you're asking a me a York. wonderful question which leads me to say that the more you know about New York the more questions you have so sometimes I give my students at NYU a homework assignment which is to come in with a question about the city It keeps you alert
0: and speaking of your course at NYU, Joyce sometimes teaches a class at NYU. You do not have to be matriculated to take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the class is going to start on February 26th, I believe, this semester? The
1: last Tuesday in February.
0: And if someone's interested in finding out about it, how can they do that?
1: Well, the, b- the fastest way is to go to my website, JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. And if you look under courses, it tells you how to register. It's four PowerPoint talks and four walking tours.
0: Oh, great. Um, my impression is that the first big ethnic community in what became Chinatown would have been Irish immigrants and, of course, the notorious Five Points. Is that correct, or um, uh, were, were there people who lived there before this, the big waves of Irish immigrants?
1: There were people who lived there before. The first uptown street in the city was the Bowery. It was the only one that went uptown at a certain, uh, up to a certain point, and it was the road to Peter Stuyvesant's farm which in Dutch is the Bowery. And uh, by the 1640s, some of the Africans who had been brought to New Amsterdam to farm uh, were given their freedom, and the only place they were allowed to live was along the Bowery. So those would have been the very first group of people who lived there. Mm. Uh, In terms of the Irish, there were Irish here before the terrible famine or starvation of the 1840s, and so that's where they would have been. The first Chinese uh, seemed to have mostly lived along the East River. Uh, Some of them were sailors who had jumped ship, and only after a few years did they move a little bit west to the area around Mott Street.
0: And would that have been the beginnings of what we now know as Chinatown?
1: Yes, it was, and it was really just three streets that were Chinatown for a very long time.
0: When did the first immigrants from China move in any significant numbers, and so the neighborhood started to become Mm -hmm. Chinatown from the Five Points.
1: Well, there was a guy named Ah Ken who in 1858, I believe it was, was credited for being the first Chinese person to move there. But um, it was really a lot of people from the area around Canton came to the West Coast for two reasons, to work in the gold fields because they were in very bad poverty in China and also to uh, help Build the Transcontinental Railroad, which is completed in 1869. Now, when the East Coast and the West Coast were finally connected by rail, a lot of people expected an economic boom in California, but if you over expect a boom, you get a bust. People out West took out their rage on the Chinese who were the least culpable of any of this. Uh, Many of them had died helping to put down rails, particularly across the Rocky Mountains. And so there was a lot of discrimination, a lot of laws in California were passed against them. And so that's really, I would say, 1869, 1870 is when the wave starts coming east to New York.
0: Was it because of any experience in New York that, that may have led to the Chinese Exclusion Act, or was that mostly because of discrimination on the West Coast that had its impact in Washington?
1: Well, I think it was mostly that, you know, whenever you want to discriminate against somebody, you always say, but they're not like us, and that's what people were beginning to say about people from Asia. Hmm.
0: So when did the, when did Chinatown begin to become the kind of neighborhood that we see today?
1: Well, I would say in the 1870s and the 1880s, of course, the infamous Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882. It was the first racist immigration law this country had. And it said some things. It said, no matter how many generations an Asian American is in America, they can never become citizens. It said, we don't want more Chinese to be born here, so we're not going to allow Chinese women to enter the country, even if they were married to Chinese men. So um, they said, well, if the man is a merchant, but they could come in. But the men were pretty much all laborers, so it pretty much kept women out.
0: And was there a point at which women started immigrating to the United States and also to Chinatown in greater numbers? Uh,
1: Well, that really wasn't going to be until I would say 1965 when the law was totally stopped and Asians were treated by uh, numbers rather than by ethnicity or race. Uh, The uh, official end of the Chinese Exclusion Act it was 1943 when this country wanted Chiang Kai-shek's help against Japan but really it wasn't until 1965 that it all changed
0: hmm. okay we're going to take a short break in a couple of seconds we're going to open up the phone lines uh, shortly our number is 877-480-4120 many of our listeners have questions for the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours uh, we'd love to hear from you we'll be back in a minute back to Rediscovering New York. I'm Jeff Goodman, and today we are focusing on Chinatown uh, in advance of the Lunar New Year, which is happening next Tuesday. Uh, Our first guest is Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours, and you can read more about Joyce's tours on JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce, what kind of businesses proliferated in Chinatown when it started to become Chinatown, when there were lots of, of... of Chinese immigrants who were moving to the to the neighborhood.
1: Well, one thing was certainly restaurants, food. A lot of the uh, Chinese really didn't like the food that was here already, so they created their own food, and Chinatown had the, I guess, advantage of being not far from Newspaper Row, until uh, about 1900 or 1904. Uh, we had dozens of newspapers, and they were very uh, conveniently situated between Chinatown and City Hall, so they could go in one direction to get political news and they could get go in the other direction to get uh, kind of uh, ethnic and personal news. And so they started spreading the word about this very interesting food that's in Chinatown. So that was, that was one of the main things. Uh, Aki and some others pretty much cornered the cigar trade in New York um, in the middle of the 19th century. And people had carts and would sell different things on the street.
0: How did the, the Chinese community that was growing in the 1880s interact with the people who were here when they first started coming, was there the same kind of discrimination that that they faced on the West Coast?
1: Uh, Well, there weren't really laws against them, except, of course, for the immigration law, but um, they weren't really respected very much. They were thought of something as an oddity, I guess, And so people would often feel very exotic by going there. Of course, it got the reputation of being filled with opium dens and kind of terrible, terrible things. And some people, and I hate to say it, but tour guides, in my own profession, tour guides, Chuck Connors was the most notorious he would have people act like they were in an opium den and then he would sort of confuse the tourists and take them around and get them lost and take them to this set-up opium den. And then he would provide um, them for the pickpockets that were his friends. So they would often be ripped off. So that was one of the uh, occupations as well.
0: How long ago was this? Was this recent? <laughs> is Chuck one of your competitors, or was this uh, before you went into the business?
1: Uh, this was definitely have nothing to do with me. No, no, but what? But <laughs> I know, I know. It was about 100 years ago. <laughs> okay, okay. This
0: 1811, is, this is, 1911. This is pre-Joyce Gold, just yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> Were there any particular kinds of businesses that were in the neighborhood once upon a time, maybe with the possible exception of speakeasies, which we don't see in the neighborhood today? Actually, opium mm-hmm. dens. Must have, were there opium dens in, in China? Today?
1: There were some, but it was certainly not as rife as, uh, as salacious people wanted to have you think. There were theaters on Doyer Street that was the first Chinese theater. It was mostly for the community itself, though, rather than for outsiders, uh, so that was one of them. Um, but people worked very long hours, very hard. There were barbershops. Uh, Doyer Street had, still has a lot of the barbershops, and that was one of the occupations, again, to, be, to serve the community itself.
0: Just from a personal perspective, I have to add that Chinatown is a really rich neighborhood, and I just love walking in the streets, not just to Mm -hmm. go to my favorite couple of restaurants, but just to be there.
1: Well, one thing that interests me about Chinatown, in a lot of neighborhoods of the city, and I deal with 40 different neighborhoods that I give tours of, one ethnic group moves in, and then after maybe 20 years, they do better, they move out, and a new group moves in. But Chinatown was filled with Chinese immigrants 120 years ago, and there's still people coming in. And uh, so it, in a way, feels more like a different place than any other neighborhood of the city. I guess that's changed now with our huge uh, 38% foreign-born groups uh, today, but uh, I find it extremely interesting.
0: Chinatown also I find interesting is that if you look at many other older ethnic neighborhoods... Uh, Little Italy, they tend to shrink the Lower East Side, mm-hmm. the Jewish Lower East Side. Uh, the staples of what you would identify with those original communities has shrunk. But Chinatown is a community that seems to grow. The, mm-hmm. uh, you see uh, more Chinese characters on, on, on businesses, streets from where they used to be into Little Italy. So it, it it's not just vibrant, but it seems to grow.
1: Oh, definitely. Ever since 1965, an immigration was opened up. Um, there are quite a lot of businesses now, and of course, it's not uh, tourism. For many years, was the number one business in Chinatown, but now, of course, there are lots of doctors and lawyers and other kinds of shops, and so it's it's not just what it used to be. But yes, it, they say it goes up perhaps as far as Grand Street and down below Canal, so it is much expanded. The Bowery was not it had no Asian footprint thirty years ago. Oh,
0: wow. And we're going to speak to a business owner and manager uh, who has a business below Canal Street in the second part of our show. Uh, aside from Chuck Connor disappearing from the scene, <laughs> <laughs> how has the neighborhood evolved in the 20th century? How, what would it have looked like around the time of the First World War in the 20s, and, and how do we see it different today?
1: Well, before 1965, it was largely Pell Street, Doyers Street, and Mott Street. It was very small. Uh, the Irish were... Basically, around there. Since women were not in general allowed to be uh, Asian women were not allowed to come into the country, there seems to have been some intermarriage among the nearby uh, Irish women and Chinese men. But it was basically just three streets until the immigration laws changed. I mean, before 1965, you could be three ge- third generation Chinese Canadian and we wouldn't let you into this country. Just part of our, a terrible part of our past, one of a number of terrible parts of our past.
0: So if you had been uh, an immigrant and had immigrated in the United States, to the United States, and then the Exclusion Act was passed, does that mean that you, one was not able to become a citizen? And then if you had children, that they were not citizens of the Correct.
1: Country? You could never become a citizen. That was part of the law.
0: Wow. Well, I have to give credit where credit is due to an evolving country and, of course, to President Johnson, who signed the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, also called the Seller Act. Uh, Heart Seller, yeah. Heart Seller. It did remove the institutionalized discrimination that existed against non-Northern European immigrants. Mm -hmm. And very symbolically, he signed that law at the foot of the Statue of Liberty. We're not going to compare him to a more recent president, but you you can guess... Uh, use your imagination. One thing that I've always been, been interested in is, is is if the, I mean, we see the celebration of the Chinese New Year and the color and the costumes and, and firecrackers. How has the celebration of the New Year changed over the years? Has it changed over the years or has it always been the same?
1: Well, that I don't really know, but I do know it's become very, very popular and especially after nine eleven when uh, some of the uh, visitors, particularly student groups and international travelers for years thought New York was unsafe and didn't come. And they were the biggest uh, clients for the shops in Chinatown. Uh, The uh, stores there and the population have worked very hard to have things like dragon dances and events and food food events to get people back because it is just so fascinating. And uh, it's very close to many other things in, China, in the city, but it's la, an enclave. And, of course, now we're just talking about the Manhattan Chinatown. Apparently, there are more than twice as many Chinese in Queens County and almost as many as that in Brooklyn.
0: Well, now we have Chinatown in Sunset Park. We have mm-hmm. Chinatown in Flushing. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably missing a couple of them. Uh, am i
1: <laughs> yes you are but we won't go there uh, because we're talking about manhattan today yes
0: yes of course <laughs> um what kind of personal experiences have you may have had in 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 your travels or with or with some tour groups i know we've we've done a couple of of tours but my my group is pretty staid and just goes along have you had any any interesting or out-of-the-box experiences with people that you've taken on tours in the neighborhood
1: Well, I've taken school groups to Mott Street, and I have a wonderful picture of the kids holding their noses in front of the fish store, the outside fish, very colorful fish outside. Of course, it's right at the edge of the Five Points, and so that appeals to a lot of people who want to know about when it was one of the most dangerous, or known as one of the most dangerous places in the country 150 years ago. There's a shop that sells cardboard versions of iPhones and computers and other things that people take to the graves when they honor their relatives and give them things in cardboard form that they might have wanted to have in the afterlife. So there are a lot of wonderful things. One of my favorite parts of Chinatown is Columbus Park because people there play instruments, they sing. they have all kinds of events. They, they play cards and other games out front. And, you know, so much of, new, of American life changed when people started staying inside with television. But somehow Columbus Park always reminds me of what this country was before we had television. It's like everybody's backyard, and it's very communal and just wonderful.
0: And Columbus Park, of course, at one point was tenements and was... uh, Oh, it
1: still is. Yes, it was Neapolitan, which is why in the 1890s, when much of the worst of the five points was demolished, it was named for an Italian explorer.
0: Well... um, there was, isn't there, some history of Irving Berlin down in Chinatown? Or? There
1: is, because a hundred years ago, hundred thirty years ago, the Bowery was one of the main entertainment spots of the city. The Bowery is so fascinating because it's always been a divide with different ethnic groups on different sides. Uh, in the eighteen sixties, there were Irish on one side and Germans on the other. In the eight, in nineteen hundred there were Italians on one side and Jews on the other. And today, there are people from different parts of China that the Bowery separates. So I find that particularly interesting about it.
0: Were there different sort of areas for people, let's say, from who were from Canton originally, people who were from further up north? Would, did you have those kind of... Geographical divides in the neighborhood?
1: Uh, there are now, uh, apparently in the 1880s. I'm sorry, 1980s, uh, people from the Fujian province north of Canton started coming in, and they pretty much are east of the Bowery. And uh, the statue of, for example, Commissioner Lin, who, was, who tried to end England's uh, import, exporting opium into China in the 1840s and 1850s, Primarily, he faces the Fujianese east of uh, east of the Bowery, whereas the Confucius statue faces Old Chinatown west of the Bowery. So there are subtle differences that tell you uh, the change is going on.
0: Mm. One more question: Do you have any favorite places to eat in the neighborhood? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I like the Namwa Tea Parlor. It's I was there many many years ago when it was owned by another member of the present family. But it's the the oldest dim sum place in the city. And that's one of my favorite. There's also a wonderful shop on Mott Street where uh, there are unusual things that are sold. And it's quite different from much of the rest of the neighborhood.
0: Mm. Well, Joyce, thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you on again. We have been speaking with the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a fantastic tour guide and knows more about the city's history than anyone I've ever met. Uh-huh. You can take her tours at joycegoldhistorytours.com and also find out about the fabulous course she's giving at NYU later next month. Joyce, thank you so much. Great to have you.
1: Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. <laughs> you like comic books and movies how about tv and pop culture then you've come to the right place hi i'm michael dolce host of secrets of the sire joined every week by my co-host hassan lord of the radio godwin together we have over 15 years experience creating graphic novels screenplays and more join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about wednesday nights 8 p.m eastern talkradio.nyc
0: Welcome back to Rediscovering New York, listeners across the U.S., in New York and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman. And today, in advance of the Lunar New Year next Tuesday and the Chinese New Year, we are focusing on Chinatown, actually Manhattan's Chinatown. It's New York's oldest Chinatown. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646 330 4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Even though I'm a real estate agent, one thing our show is not about, it's not about real estate or the business of real estate. Uh, But there is a really good show for real estate. It's called Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. It's on Voice America you can reach it on voiceamerica.com. and can be heard on Tuesday mornings, live at 9 a.m., and also on podcast. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can also follow me on Instagram at NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our second guest today is a business owner from Chinatown, uh, Joanne Kwong, who's the president of Pearl River Mart. A native New Yorker from Astoria, Joanne is the daughter of Chinese immigrants from the Philippines. A student of the famous New York City public school system, of which I'm also a graduate, Joanne went to Stuyvesant High School, I went to Midwood, and then Joanne went to Columbia, Duke Law School, and Duke Graduate School. Joanne has been a civil litigator, she's clerked for a federal judge, she's taught at Fordham Law School, and also served as counsel to the president and vice president for communications at Barnard. And that's before her career in business started a few years ago. Joanne is the daughter-in-law of Pearl River Mart's founders. After witnessing the public lament that followed the 2015 closing of Pearl River when it was in Soho, Joanne decided that the family business deserved another, another chapter in its already storied history. And so in November 2016, she reopened its doors, this time at the crossroads of Tribeca and Chinatown at its present location of Broadway and Walker Street. Under Joanne's leadership, Pearl River not only remains the joyful and eclectic emporium beloved by New Yorkers and visitors, it now also serves as a torchbearer for preserving Asian culture and highlights the creativity of Asian and Asian American entrepreneurs, designers, and artists. Those are the kind of businesses that we love at Rediscovering New York. And she's opened two additional locations, one in Chelsea Market and a brand new location at the Museum of Chinese in America, which is having its grand opening this week, right in time for the Chinese New Year. It's with great pleasure that we welcome Joanne Kwong to Rediscovering New York. Welcome, Joanne.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you're a native New Yorker.
4: Yes. Born and bred.
0: And you grew up in Astoria.
4: I did, yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, technically, our mailing address was Long Island City, but until last year, uh, with Amazon um, I always had to explain to people where that was so I always oh. said Astoria <laughs> uh, but actually my zip code is Long Island City and it always has been oh
0: okay <laughs> well interesting little factoid uh, the uh, historical society out there is Astoria and Long Island City it's one and the same and they ah. used to have their offices in Astoria and they've just moved to Long Island City yeah. <laughs> What, you're in a different career than what than what you intended what had you decided to go to law school? Was there any driving thing or you just did it after after, after college?
4: Yeah I mean I am a big fan of um, civic society and government and um, I was a political science major and um, I, I got a master's in political science as well and, um, and and I still believe that and I think that's actually um, the driving force be, be behind um, my second and third careers as well um, that uh, I, I believe, um, that, uh, civic society and government like works together and, um, and you can kind of affect change in society in different ways. Um, so I went to law school because, um, I kind of wanted to know what the rules were in the world. And, and I think law school is a great place to, to learn those things. Um, and I, I didn't know where I was going to go, um, but I ended up um, being a litigator. Um, and that's, um, it was it was a fine career. Um, so I think every change that I had, um, as far as career went, was more serendipity and opportunity, um, and kind of like honing in on what um, what gave me passion.
0: Then you moved from being a litigator to uh, counsel to the president and VP for communications at Barnard. What had you choose that? What what? to move from litigation to to that role?
4: Yeah. Um, uh, there was a, a woman that I really wanted to work with, um, and I thought at the time that I was still young, and I would try it <laughs> and uh, move into nonprofit, and if I didn't like it, I would go back. Um, I ended up staying for 10 years, and um, I think working at Barnard, um, which uh, is over 125 years old, all women's institution um, here in New York. Uh, it just really was a wonderful experience because to see a place that was run primarily by women for women um, in this great city with such a long storied history um, really uh, had a big impact on my career and kind of on um, the way that I think as well.
0: Well, my sister went to Barnard, <clears throat> excuse me, and I'm a proud graduate of Vassar College. I'm ah. very big on the uh, uh, notion, uh, not the notion, but the reality of of what it means to uh, have people who uh, transformed higher education for women, and I'm very lucky that I went to a school that that was committed to the same thing.
4: Wonderful.
0: When were you still at Columbia when your family was faced with the reality of having to close Pearl River Mart? Uh
4: Oh, yes, I was. Yeah, I, I worked at Barnard. Um, I had been there. probably... Barnard, sorry. Yes, please. yeah. Um, I had I had been there probably for about nine years. And um, I actually, uh, it was very typical of how my um, in-laws are. Uh, I actually remember being in the cafeteria, getting ready to to get my food. And and a friend texted me and said like, oh, I saw the news that your in-laws are closing the store. And I was kind of like, uh, <laughs> they didn't tell the kids um that it was happening that day
0: so who found out if they didn't even share it with uh with your husband and with you i
4: think it was crane's it was crane's business <laughs> but but i think that's the way that they are they're very practical so it's not that they kept it from us we had been talking about it as a family um and i think the kids had had tried to help um uh, my mother-in-law my father-in-law figure out what they wanted to do um and the store is a very interesting it has a really interesting history. It started in 1971. And um, as Joyce was talking about the Immigration Act of 1965, my um, in-laws and my own parents were beneficiaries of that law, change in law. So they were um, uh, students, graduate students primarily. So uh, my father-in-law has a PhD in chemistry from the University of Chicago. And he was part of this activist community in New York of kind of overseas Chinese students and postgrads, who it was the post-Vietnam era. And they um, couldn't understand why um, relations between China and the U.S. were frozen and why trade was embargoed. It didn't make sense to them because in their world, you know, people were people. Um, So they actually created Pearl River um, as a friendship store. To uh, work to eradicate discrimination um, against Chinese Americans, so they felt that if they created a store, people could come in, you could look at beautiful things and taste some um, delicious like food or snacks or drinks, um, and uh, look at cultural items and actually have face-to-face interactions with customers um, and you know employees. That um, little by little, that contact um, that. Part of um, everyday life would eradicate discrimination, and you know, forty-eight years later, um, I think they were right. Uh, so, th- for them, um, when they were faced with a quintupling of rent um, in 2015, I think for them, they also felt like they had accomplished their mission.
0: Quintupling of rent. Wow. It was
4: quintupling. They had been paying about a little over a million dollars a year in Soho, and it had quintupled to six million dollars a year. So that's a lot of lucky cats to sell. <laughs> it's a lot of fans. And I think for any small business, if you look at that stretch of Broadway in Soho, um, it's, it's looking a little empty. Um, and, and I think that is the reality of um, real estate in New York City.
0: Mm. So how long after you got this news did you start thinking about maybe there's a way that we can, I don't say resurrect, maybe there's a way that we can continue this great tradition and what this business has done? for not just your family, but also for New Yorkers and for and, and for the community in New York.
4: Yeah, something really interesting about my in-laws is that um, maybe it's because they, they uh, kind of came of age in the 60s and, and 70s and were pretty progressive in New York City. Um, they never really pressured their children, uh, my husband and his sisters, um, to go into the family business. Um, in fact, they had never even mentioned it. Um, so I think f- us kids... Uh, you know, we were trying to help them um, to figure out what they wanted to do if they wanted to continue the business. And I think, you know, we went to school and uh, went to grad school and were professionals at that time. So we thought, oh, you know, uh, let's talk to a business consultant or let's go to Goldman Sachs or let's, you know, figure out um, how to get new leadership in. And I think for them, they that's not what they went into the business for. Um, So they wanted to make sure that there was somebody to lead uh, the next generation that felt the mission of friendship, um, and community like they did. And, um, and yeah, I, I and I think, uh, there was, uh, such a reaction to the announcement. It was on social media and, um, just all this, uh, lament, um, as, as ha- is what happens sometimes when, uh, beloved places close in New York. And, it just had a, a real impact on me. And at that point, I was working in communications and I, I was looking at this landscape. And to me, it just said like, wow, there is t- t- like tremendous love for this brand and um, a- and still a lot of value. So if the rent hadn't quit, tumbled, it would still be a profitable business. So, th- so you know, I, it wasn't immediate. Um, uh, but my husband and I kind of thought you know, maybe it's, it's, let's approach them. And um, let's see if um, that's something that they would be interested in. And I think secretly, um, they had hoped that that would be the case. So I think when we raised our hands, they were like, Oh, great. Yes, we're all on board. Um, And actually, the great thing is that they're still involved. So it's not like they just passed off the business. They um, they, uh, we work side by side, so my um, in-laws probably work longer than I do. They work six days a week, <laughs> and I have little kids, so I don't. Um, but <laughs> but um, it's it's great. Uh, it's intergenerational, and um, and we're building the business back together.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. You know, one question I ask business owners is why they choose a particular neighborhood to, to establish a business in or buy a business in. When someone takes over the family business, that's usually not a question because you just take over a business that is in the is in the family, uh, but you actually had to make a choice about 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 relocating the business, about locating it somewhere because it was already closed. Uh, Pearl River Mart actually was not in Chinatown; it was in Soho. But now you are in Chinatown and Tribeca. What had you decide to to uh, establish the new location where, where you have it now?
4: Um, yeah, one I think one benefit that I really have is. Um, my in-laws are two mentors who they have uh, built this business for 47 years. So um, they had kind of quirky requirements. Um, So they felt like it had to be on Broadway. Um, It had to be, they live in Soho, so it had to be kind of walking distance from their apartment. Um, And uh, I think they felt strongly that it should be on a corner. Um, So, you know, literally, I think uh, my father-in-law went up and down Broadway and um, talked to some of the landlords or whoever the brokers were and kind of looked at what was available. And, um, and uh, our store now is about a block south of where the store was two stores ago when it used to be on Canal and Broadway. Oh, okay. So it's, you can actually see it from our window, and we're like three blocks from the Soho store. So it's, it seems um, serendipitous to stay in that um, area.
0: Oh, great. All right. Well, we will be back in a moment to continue our illuminating conversation with Joanne Kwan of Pearl River Mart.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
3: The best designs for your life start
0: alternative.com We are back. With Joanne Kwan of Pearl River Mart, and you are tuned into Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman. Uh, Joanne, uh, at what age did you become? Uh, did you come to know and become familiar with Chinatown, having grown up in Astoria?
4: Um, I think like many Chinese families, we came to Chinatown every weekend. So that is really where our family's life was. So, uh, you know, my uh, parents, they had coworkers, and we had neighbors. But every Saturday and Sunday, we went to Chinatown. Um, We went to um, have dim sum or yum cha, as they say. And uh, we bought our meat there. I got my eyeglasses there. We bought blue jeans and sneakers. And that's really where our life was.
0: Being one of New York's storied ethnic enclaves, do you think there were different experiences you had of the neighborhood since your parents didn't come from China but came from the Philippines? Did you feel that there was any difference, any any different experience that you had? Yeah,
4: I think not really, uh, and I think that's because we were um, were our um, Cantonese speakers, Toisan speakers, and that's where the majority of um, Chinatown residents in the '80s and '70s were, um, and now it's it's very different. Um, but uh, no, we, for, you know, for all intents and purposes, we were Cantonese. And um, but uh, it, it also didn't help, I think, that I think Filipino uh, cuisine uh, at that time, there, there was no place to really get great Filipino food. Um, so uh, yeah, Chinatown was uh, our home.
0: Hmm. How have you seen the neighborhood change since you started experiencing it as a as a child? How, how has it changed? How is it? How has it evolved?
4: Yeah. Well, um, it's kind of funny because in this position that I'm in right now, um, I almost felt like I grew up um, going to Chinatown every weekend uh, until I was probably in high school. Um, And then, you know, I never really left the city except for for graduate school. But I I, I did have a professional life where um, I just wasn't around as much. So I felt kind of like my adult life. I went off and got a jobs, several jobs, and went to school, and then now I'm back. Um, so it kind of feels that way, that there was um, a gap in years. So coming back, what I can see is that um, there is a lot of energy in um, Chinatown and in the Asian-American community, and I see a lot of second-generation, third-generation um, store business owners, restaurant owners that are coming back. And, and I think it's really exciting because they are taking um, their families legacies and changing those businesses and making them something even better. Uh, I think.
0: Oh, that's great. Uh, we're going to open up the phones. Uh, if any of our listeners would like to ask Joanne a question, you can reach us at 877-480-4120. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question that I asked Joyce. Uh, have you seen the celebration of the New Year change at all from the time you were you were small and, well, younger <laughs> until until now? Have you seen any changes in yeah. the it's celebrating? Yeah, I
4: mean, I feel like it's grown. Um, actually, probably in the last... Uh, five years or so, um, and that could be a recognition of the fact that there are more um, immigrants from Asia that are coming in, um, uh, more of maybe a recognition that of um, the...
0: Uh, you mean from different parts of Asia, not just from China? Yeah, uh-huh.
4: yeah, because uh, Lunar New Year is celebrated in, in um, many parts of Asia, not just China. Um, but it's become, uh, it's a fun holiday. It's a fun holiday for um, kids. Um, it's a very commercial holiday, too. Um, and it's it's very joyful. And it's actually a holiday that um, you don't have to be Chinese or Asian to celebrate because it's about uh, increasing your luck for the new year. And who doesn't want that? Um, because of the way that you get it is by eating the right foods and um, getting some new clothes and a haircut um, and being with family and friends. So it's it's a great way to spend a holiday. Um, so I've seen it grown. us uh, seen it grow um, just in the past five years.
0: And we're coming up on the year of the pig. Yes, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, for those novices who haven't had the pleasure or the joy of experiencing a new year in Chinatown, what time should people start going down there? What parts of the neighborhood are the best parts to, well, of course, I'm sure right in front of Pearl River Mart. <laughs> but,
4: yes, uh, yes, but, we are uh, having a lion dance. Yeah, it's Funny you should ask. Uh, <laughs> the great thing is that um, there are multiple events, so um, it doesn't have to be on a single day. Um, I believe in Chinatown that there um, are firecrackers, for example, um, on the new year um and which is tuesday. Yeah, I think it's yeah. tuesday. Google it. Um and then on the weekend of the 16th and the 17th, um because Lunar New Year is actually a two-week holiday. So, uh it's about 14 days. So, uh, for all of those uh, two weeks and uh, you know, the, you can find celebrations um everywhere. So, uh Chinatown is a great place to see a parade. Um, and also there is something called super Saturday, which is where all of the line dance troops go to the neighborhood businesses and, um, and wish them luck for the good, for the new year. Um, and, but there are tons of places. Um, if you go to like Brookfield place or Columbus circle, um, or Chelsea market, um, you'll find celebrations. So Pearl river alone, we have um, two weeks worth of programming, um, and we're celebrating at our Chelsea market store, um, and in our Tribeca store and in our new store, um, at the Museum of Chinese in America.
0: Well, you beat me to the punch because I was going to ask you about mm-hmm. your second and third stores. What had you picked? How did you pick Chelsea Market as the place to have your second store after after you reopened uh, in Tribeca?
4: Um, they kind of picked us, actually. Uh, we had uh, reopened for um, only about six weeks, really. And um, and somebody from Chelsea Market came to the Tribeca store and um uh it was actually around New York time. And they um, said, you know, hello, I'm from uh, the parent company. Was is Jamestown. Um, and uh, we'd like to talk to you about opening a Chelsea market. And I, uh, you know, I love Chelsea market. I mean, the if you the foot traffic alone it, for a business is um, you can't ignore. You have to take that meeting. So I just took that meeting. Um, We really didn't have any resources, uh, human or uh, financial at that point, (laughs) because we put everything into rebuilding um, this Tribeca store. Um, But we made it work, um, and they made it work to their credit. And it was funny because when we were signing the lease, the president of Jamestown, um, Chelsea Market, happened to be there. And he said, you know, I've actually been calling for the last eight years, uh, <laughs> and trying to get you to move in. And my head whipped around to my in-laws like, what? What? What is this? Why
0: didn't you ever tell us <laughs> that? You must have asked them.
4: Um, but, you know, we love being a part of Chelsea Market. They... Um, it's just a wonderful curation of uh, food and retail now, and uh, and they do programming as well, so there's always something lively going on. And the community of business owners, there are a lot of uh, family businesses, a lot of women-owned businesses, and it's a really dynamic uh, community of just business owners. So I've learned a lot just from my colleagues that are there.
0: Well, one question that some of our listeners might be interested in, has, has your business changed at all since the head shop opened up across? <laughs> but We
4: won't go into that one. <laughs> an interesting shop (laughs) shop. yeah
0: as Uh, they are in the city yes uh how did you come to open the newest shop which is going to be opening uh in two days in the museum of chinese in america what led to that because i know it's a new partnership in fact uh, uh to let our listeners know, i actually called uh the museum and joanne happened to be there when i called and i was interested in finding a great business to be on this on this episode and the person who picked up the phone said, it's funny, you should be calling right now. Talk about serendipity. It's one of the most serendipitous business experiences I've ever had. Yes. How, did you, how did you become engaged with the museum and, and open up a, uh, a store in the yeah,
4: museum? Yeah, you know. so um, uh, just I'll make it short, but like the longer story is that when I was a college student, this was 25 years ago, um, MOCA, uh, Museum of Chinese in America, MOCA for short, um, was in a, uh, on the second floor of PS23, which um, was on, I think, Mulberry Street at the time. And it was kind of a two-room... Um, I mean, I don't know if you could call it a museum. It was uh, it was just a very humble place. But it had archival materials. And, uh, you know, as a young uh, college student, um, I, I kind of felt like, wow, what is this? Um, and I always remembered it. So when I came back to Chinatown, um, it it had uh, changed. It had moved into this um, beautiful space on Center Street um, designed by Maya Lin. Um, and... Uh, it really seemed to be the glue uh, or one of the glue, important um, institutions that um, kind of held the neighborhood together. So um, they collected oral histories. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I built an art gallery on the second level of um, the Tribeca store um, because I felt like there, there needed to be ex- exhibition space for Asian Americans um, and in Chinatown and in downtown Manhattan because there's not a lot of um, gallery space. Uh, for emerging artists, um, that they don't have to pay for. So um, I I asked them for help, and they um, Herb Tam, who's the uh, curator there, he brought over the entire curatorial team to look at my small 600 square foot room, um, that needed some renovation and that, uh, to make it comfortable for artists. So I think they, they constantly do programming and their exhibitions, um, help the community. And, uh, I couldn't be more thankful. So I I think we had stayed in close touch over the last two years. And so, um, I think when they had the idea that they wanted to improve, um, their, uh, gift shop, um, which is in their lobby, um, it, it kind of, um, organically came about from that conversation.
0: Oh, great. What a success story. Well, you can visit any of the three shops of Pearl River Mart, their flagship store, and the tri- crossroads of Tribeca and Chinatown on Broadway and Walker Street. Of course, Chelsea Market, and beginning Thursday, the Museum of Chinese in America. Joanne, thank you so much. It's been a, an illuminating conversation.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure indeed. If you have comments or questions for Rediscovering New York, if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, you can email me, Jeff Goodman at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can also like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow us on Instagram at Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And we have one other sponsor, me. I'm a real estate agent at Halstead Real Estate, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I can provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646 306 4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. And thanks to our special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.
2: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
5: Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com.
2: Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire.